Bay Hills Community Church is pleased to have you join us as we continue our series, The God Questions. We all seem to have questions about our faith or God. Some of these questions affect our faith and others affect how we deal with people. Today, Lead Pastor David Fossil looks at the question, Is this book, the Bible, reliable? Can it be trusted? Join us as Pastor Dave helps us look at historical and scientific information that will be helpful to us in finding some answers. Go ahead and grab the study guide that's in your program. You know, one of the goals of this series that we're in, God Questions, is to try and help tackle some of the big issues, some of the big questions that we have or have had about uh, God, about Jesus. If you weren't with us the last couple weeks, we've talked about world religions. Are they all the same, and do they teach the same stuff? Last week we talked about evolution and creationism. If you didn't listen to any of those, jump online. You can listen to the podcasts. Uh, but but uh, today we're going to kind of really lean on a little bit of what Tim's story was about. I met Tim oh, quite a while back. Uh, he's a friend of mine now. I remember when he first started coming to church, he kind of asked if we could meet. And so, you know, I had a cup of coffee with him. And then about once a month for the next 18 months, we would get together for uh, coffee or for lunch. And he would typically come with a list of questions that he want to ask uh, about Christianity, about God, about Jesus. And, and a lot of his questions had to deal with the topic we're going to talk about today, which is the, the reliability of the Bible and what's, about, what's this about and why are they talking about this and can we really trust that. And, and one of the reasons I kept meeting with him, um, you know, some people will meet with me and after a while, you know, I'll say, you know, you know, like if I'm in counseling, if they don't want to apply what I'm suggesting, I don't know if I can help. But with him, I kept met with, meeting with him because I, th- I liked his attitude. Not that he agreed with everything or he had, he had fully processed everything yet, um, but his attitude was right. His attitude reminded me of, of, of an attitude that we see in the Gospel of, of Mark when Jesus is speaking to this guy. Let's put it up on the screen. I'll show you what I'm talking about. He, Jesus is speaking. He says, everything is possible for him who believes. Immediately, the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe, but help me overcome my belief. And I think one of the things that we're trying to do in this series is not only try and help answer the questions, but give you a sense that questions are welcome here at Bay Hills. As long as you kind of have this attitude, you know, I, I, I believe, but I still have all these issues and I got these questions and I have these doubts and I'm, I'm trying to make progress. I'm trying to go in the right direction, but I want to be intellectually true to myself and I don't want to pretend like I've got it all figured out. And so, you know, this guy in Mark chapter 9, you know, Tim's story, maybe your story, is, is, is feel welcome here and feel that this is a safe place that you can ask questions. Um, like I said, what we're going to try and do today is try and tackle the question, is this book, the Bible, a reliable book? Is it something we can trust? Is it something that is inspired, as people said? This is kind of a big issue. It's kind of a big topic because if we cannot trust this book, we're in deep trouble right? It's kind of all kind of, you know, it's all, you know, it's, it's like quicksand. We can't, we're not sure what we can depend on. Now, culture, society is going to throw a lot of ideas at us in terms of that this book can't really be trusted. I could give you a number of different examples, but um, probably one that is most common, you know, you either read the book or saw the movie, uh, The Da Vinci Code. And in that book, Dan Brown says this, uh, Dr. T. Bean is speaking and he says, the Bible is the product of man 
my dear, not of God. Obviously, that's a main issue when we talk about this. The Bible did not magically fall from the clouds. Man created it as a historical record of tumultuous times, and it has evolved through countless translations and editions and revisions. History has never had a definite version of the book. In other words, we don't, aren't really sure that what we have is what we used to have, right? The Bible as we know it today was collated by a pagan emperor, Constantine the Great, okay? And basically the idea taught by Dan Brown, even though this is fictional and he claims it as fiction, is that this book can't be trusted. You can't trust it. And you can't trust it because you're not sure if what we have here was what was originally written. And, you know, kind of people have changed the stories to suit their own needs and so on and so forth. So you can't trust it. So I guess the question we want to ask is, you know, who's right? Is Dan Brown right or is the psalmist right when he says this? Psalm 119, 40 through 42. How I long for your precepts. Preserve my life in your righteousness. May your unfailing love come to me, O Lord, your salvation according to your promise. That's what we want, right? We want to be saved and we we want to experience and know God. Then I will answer the one who taunts me, for I trust your word. So, very simple question. Is Dan Brown right or is the psalmist right about this book? Can we trust it? Now, I'm going to tell you in advance, with these questions, um, I'm going to treat you guys like adults. And there's not a lot of fun jokes and stories this morning. It's kind of heavy. But I don't know how else to answer this question without digging deep. So you're going to have to follow me. And, and it, it gets a little complicated at times. But I think what you're going to discover is that as we leave here after 20, 25 minutes, we will not have answered all the questions. But you will be more confident about understanding what this book is and its trustworthiness. Now, when it comes to this book, the Bible, being trustworthy, there's three things I'm going to talk to you about this morning. The first thing is historical reliability. Historical reliability, why is that so significant? Anytime you look at an ancient document that claims to be true, um, and it mentions, as this book does, literally hundreds and thousands of names, of people, of places, of mountains, of rivers, of battles, of civilizations, on and on and on and on. Every time it proposes to do that, and it presents that to us as fact, as history, If that proves not to be true, if the historical facts are not true, then we can conclude that the spiritual facts aren't true either. You see how this becomes significant. So you start with the history. Let's just see if it's accurate historically, okay? And and, and then we kind of take it from there. Well, the the good news is, I guess, is that um, archaeology, the study of ancient civilizations as you dig in earth, you know, with toothbrushes and combs and fine artifacts... Archaeology has shown us time and time and time and time again that the Bible is pinpoint accurate when it talks about historical facts. Now, I could give you dozens of examples. Let me just give you four or five, okay? For example, this book, the Bible, speaks of an enemy of the Israelites called the Hittites, okay? And the Bible talks about the Hittite civilization and how they battled and how there were wars. For the longest time, there was absolutely no archaeological evidence of the Hittites. And so historians and archaeologists said, see, you can't trust the Bible. I mean, it talks about this major civilization, and we have nothing. Until 1906, this is what we discovered. Not only did they discover the capital city of the Hittites, they discovered five other of its cities, and they discovered dozens of artifacts. And the historians and the archaeologists said, oops, I guess we were wrong. 
Let me give you a couple more examples. The city of Ur. The city of Ur is significant because one of the main figures in this book is a guy called Abraham. And he happens to have come from this major city called Ur. Archaeologists and historians said, we don't have it. There's no such city ever in, in, in history that we can see archaeologically. Except about 40 years ago, they had an excavation, and this is what they discovered. The city of Ur. All of a sudden, and again, their tail between their legs, they said, well, I, I, guess, I guess they're right. Another big issue in the Bible is when it talks about miracles. I can't possibly trust miracles. And, and they talk about, like, for example, the flood. Okay, There's a story in Genesis about a flood that covers the earth or part of the earth and the known earth at the time. And you can look at it a little bit different depending on how you look at it. But, you know, it's only in the Bible. If, if these things really did happen... Wouldn't other people be talking about it? Wouldn't other civilizations and people groups be talking about things that happen in the Bible? But they don't, so we can't trust it. Except in an excavation outside of Nineveh, about uh, 70 years ago, they found this right there. That is known as Gilmogesh Tablet Number 11. Why is that so significant? Gilmogesh was a king of Nineveh. And he was a pagan king, and in this tablet, in part of his memoirs, guess what he talks about right there? He talks about a worldwide flood that completely destroyed the known world at the time. And so again, all the archaeologists said, oops, I guess maybe there's something to what's going on in the Bible. Well, how about all the names in the Bible? There's all these names in the Bible. For example, one of the most important stories you Christians claim to believe is the Jesus story, that he was born, he lived, and that he died. We don't even have evidence that the people in the crucifixion story are true. For example, there was this guy called Caiaphas. Caiaphas was the high priest. He was the one that was the first guy that put Jesus on trial and then took him to Pilate. He was the one who, who convicted him, and then Pilate passed sentence. We don't have any evidence. Caiaphas was that big of important, important. Of a, he's like a mayor. He's like, you know, it's kind of a big deal. There's no snow in such Caiaphas, except about 30 years ago. This is what they found in Jerusalem. They found a sarcophagus, and right on the side of it, you can see it. And if you could read the Aramaic, it would say Caiaphas, high priest of Jerusalem. Let me just give you one more. In the book of Acts, it talks about a major governor. His name was Gallio. That would be like, you know, our, you know, Governor Schwarzenegger or some famous governor. And they talked about Gallio. And we, we don't, we have no proof of Gallio. Again, about 70 years ago, they found this inscription and it had the name of Gallio on it. Now, I could give you example after example after example after example. In fact, on your way in, there's a table. And I would encourage you to stop by. There's a book right there, Why I Trust the Bible. I don't give you a lot of resources, but when I do, they're good. This has a hundred of the top most important archaeological discoveries and how they prove this book to be accurate. I would, if you're kind of just checking out this Jesus God thing, pick it up for yourself. If you're already a believer, there's this one and there's another one. I highly encourage you to pick it up. It's colorful, got pictures, it's easy to read, it's quick. But the point being is this. From a historical archaeological perspective, the details in these in this book proves to be true. Okay, well, let's check that. Now let's move to the next thing. How do we know that what we have here is actually what was written? Now you have to look at manuscript evidence. Now let me tell you why manuscript evidence is so important. Manuscript evidence is important because of this. If um, what was originally written... 
got copied. And they had photocopy machines. They didn't have photocopy machines or printing presses back then, right? They didn't have those things, right? So I'm taking a manuscript, let's say, from Luke, who wrote the Gospel of Luke and then wrote Acts. So I'm taking it, and I'm trying to copy it with just my, you know, my ballpoint pen and what they had back then. I don't have glasses. I'm doing it with a candle. I'm basically trying to copy the manuscript evidence as best as I can. Then, years later, you take my manuscript and you copy it. And then a couple years after that, someone else takes your manuscript. And it's, it's kind of like a game of telephone with the kids, right? They tell one story and they tell another story and they whisper the story into someone's ear. And by the time you get to the person way over here, it's a completely different story. You see, David, we can't really depend. Even if the historical facts are somewhat true, we don't really know if what was written by Luke and what was said by Jesus and what Moses wrote down, we can't really trust it because it's been copied so many times over so many years. You know, we just can't trust it. That's the argument of manuscript evidence. Well, let me explain to you how they copied it first. There was a group of guys called the Masoretes. All they did, their entire job, was to copy manuscripts. That's a copy of one of them, okay? An actual manuscript found. Here's what they would do. So I'm looking at, let's say, the Gospel of Luke, and I'm copying it, and I'm copying it, and I'm copying it. When I'm done copying it, I give it to another Masoretes. The Masoretes takes it. Here's the first thing he does. He counts the words in the manuscript. One, two, three, four, five, six. He counts, there's, you know, counts all the words. Then he counts the letters, all the letters from all the words. If the words and the letters in my manuscript doesn't match the original, they take my manuscript, burn it, and bury it. That's how serious they were about trying to copy it accurately. Well, that's a nice story, David, but we still don't know, right? Well, let me take it to the next step. There's a discipline called textual criticism. Let's put it on the screen. Here's what they do. Textual criticism studies the 500 at 5,700 ancient biblical manuscripts we have. We have almost 6,000 handwritten manuscripts of the Bible. Now, real quick, do you know how many Plato manuscripts we have? Plato's a kind of a big guy. You study him in college. How many? Eight. Do you know how many Aristotle manuscripts we have? Aristotle. Ten. We have almost 6,000 biblical manuscripts if we took those manuscripts and we burned all of them we could still recreate the entire bible just from quotes from people that were writing letters to one another back and forth we call those the early church fathers that's how much manuscript evidence we have it totals more than two million pages of text now here's what some people actually do with the bible and with other ancient manuscripts they basically take all the manuscripts oh let's go back yet i don't want to confuse they take all the manuscripts and they put them side by side by side by side by side and they go okay does this manuscript match this manuscript does this manuscript match this manuscript and they go on and on and on and all they're trying to figure out is do the manuscripts match what we have today does it match what was originally written that's textual criticism incredibly complicated job okay they're trying to just see how much they match what they have determined is 99% of what we have in here 99% we can say with full confidence is exactly what was written by the original author now, when you hear something like that, and when I hear something like that, the first thing I, ha- I ask, this is just how my mind works, what about the 1%? Because well, it could be pretty important stuff. What about the 1% that may be wrong in this book? What about that 1%? Well, let me show you one example 
of 1% of a, what's called a biblical question mark. We're not entirely sure. I'm going to give you one example. Matthew chapter 6, verse 8. Now let's put it up on the screen. Matthew chapter 6, verse 8 says this. Let me just read it to you. And then I'll explain to you what's on the screen. Here's Matthew 6, 8. Listen to it. Do not be like them. Your father knows what you need before you ask him. That's Matthew chapter 6, verse 8, as you will find it in your English Bible. Problem. Manuscripts don't all say the same thing at one little part in this, in this verse. So the textual critics come in and they line up all the manuscripts. And there's five possible options. Option number one, it should say your heavenly father. Option number two, it said no, it should say your God, the father. Option number three, the heavenly father. Option number four, our father. Option number five, your father. So they're quibbling back and forth. What should it really say? Now, just look at number one. Right after your heavenly father, you see there's some letters there. That's Greek. That was the original language it was written in. And then you see all those numbers, 04728892MG1195. These are all manuscripts. So all those manuscripts have your heavenly father. And then you look at number two, and they have three or four manuscripts that say your God, and it goes on and on. And then you look at option number five, and they literally have hundreds of manuscripts that say your father. So the textual critics go, what should be in the English Bible? It should be the last one, your father, because it has the most evidence. Does that make sense? Now, here's the question I have for you. Take a deep breath. This is getting deep. This is getting complicated. Question. When you see that, does that make you doubt the Bible? I look at that and go, I, I hardly see a difference between all five. You see, the 1% of questionable words we have in the Bible, this is just one example. This is what we have. It's not like major things like Jesus coming back from the dead or what we do with sin. No, this is it. This is the 1% that people aren't sure about. Why am I saying all this to you? Because you can have confidence. But then what was a absolute slam dunk happened in 1957 right here. Let's put it up on the screen. The Dead Sea Scrolls, I know it doesn't sound very hot, very sexy, but it is considered to be the most significant archaeological and literary accomplishment and discovery in the last uh, 100 years. That right there. What happened? Here's what happened. There's a shepherd. He's got his sheep. The sheep are going around. It's time to leave. All the sheep won't come back. He thinks one of his sheep has gone into that little cave there. Okay, this is part of Israel. So he takes a rock and he starts throwing rocks into the cave, trying to get the sheep to come back. And finally, he gets one of the, of the rocks to go into that little window there in the cave. But instead of hearing the sheep go, bah, what he hears is pottery cracking. So he goes, uh-oh, there's something in there. So he goes down in there. And what they eventually find is literally 931 ancient documents and manuscripts, most of them being biblical. And everybody went absolutely crazy because the manuscripts they found in that cave was almost a thousand years older than the ones that we had. What does that mean? They were really, really, really close to the originals. So everybody said, okay. Let's see if this matches up with what we found in there. You know what they came up with? 99.4 accuracy. What am I trying to tell you? I'm trying to tell you, you can have confidence that what is written in here is what 
Apostle Paul wrote. It's what Jesus said. It's what Matthew said as he walked with Jesus as a disciple. So historical accuracy, manuscript accuracy. I have a problem with science, though, David. You know, what what do I do with all the scientific facts? Well, um, people make a big deal about science. If you weren't with us last week, last week was heavy as well, but I, I think it was helpful. Uh, but here's my problem, David. I, you know, I'm really into sciences and chemistry and biology, and it's hard for me to trust a book that is pre-scientific in its understanding of the world. Well, take a step back and let me help you understand what this book is trying to do. This is not trying to be a, a science textbook for you. It was never intended to be a science textbook. In fact, when this book is described, I don't want you to write this word down, but I want to show you what people are saying about. This is what they say about the Bible. They say that it is written from a phenomenological perspective. What does that mean? Here's all it means. It describes the world as I see it from my naked eye. That's all it means. As I see the world, I write it down and describe it. So the Bible isn't trying to give me scientific formulas and amino acids. No. What I see, I write down. Let me give you an example why this really isn't that big of a deal. You don't make a big deal about this. Tonight, when you watch the evening news, if you watch the weather forecast, you're going to hear some scientific jargon. The weather forecaster is going to use some scientific jargon. Let me give you two or three. A high-pressure system, that's science. Barometric pressure, that's science. The probability of precipitation, that's science. But right at the end, if you listen... The weather forecaster will say something like this. And we just want you to know that tomorrow morning the sun will rise at uh, 5.11 a.m. Something like that. Question. When you've heard that, do you ever get on the phone, call up the TV station, and angrily demand that the weathercaster stop speaking in unscientific, prehistoric terms? You go, well, what are you talking about? Well, the idea that the sun rises is unscientific. It is untrue. You know this, don't you? The sun doesn't rise. We're the ones that moving. The sun's stationary. Oh, I see what you're saying. You know why we don't make a big deal about it? Because the weathercaster is speaking from a phenomenological perspective. He's just seeing what he's just describing what he sees. The sun rising, but the sun doesn't rise. We're the ones moving. And that's what this book does. It's not trying to give you scientific formulas. Having said that, when it does speak of science, It's amazingly accurate. I'm going to give you some examples. Some of my views before, but they make a lot of sense. Let's put the first one up there. When you talk about hydrology or the water cycle, you will see a picture like this. We've all seen it in our textbooks. It's the idea of what happens with water, right? You've got condensation, collects in the clouds. Then you have precipitation. The the rain comes down. It gathers in the sea and the rivers. And then you have evaporation. It collects in the clouds. And the whole process happens all over again, right? You and I all know this because we studied this when we were in junior high. But do you know until about the 1400s that they actually believed, and when I say they, I say the scientific community, that the water that came in the rain collected in the middle of the earth in subterranean caves? That's what science used to teach. They didn't understand hydrology and the water cycle. Why am I saying this to you? Because for over 2,000 years, the Bible has been talking about it. Isaiah 55, verse 10. As the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth. The Bible knew about the water cycle and hydrology years ago. Let's talk about geology. The study of geology is the study of the earth. You do remember that most people believe that the earth was flat. Even up to the days of Columbus, everybody thought scientists believed the earth was flat. 
But the Bible for 2,000 years has been saying something completely different. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 22, God sits enthroned above the circle of the earth. It said it since the beginning. Oh, I guess the Bible was right about that one. Let me give you just one more example, physiology. Physiology is the study of basically our life. Um, when people got sick years ago, you know one of the treatments was to bleed them. Have you ever heard this? To bleed them. In fact, some of our presidents have died because their doctors bled them, okay? Uh, so they would come and they would basically stick some sort of syringe out and they would release the blood because they believed that all the disease was in the blood and we got to get rid of it. Of course, now the medical community says no. Instead of taking blood for, uh, from them, we have to you know, transfuse and put blood in them. It was 19, uh, 1600, 1628, that a guy called William Harvey told the scientific and medical community, life is in our blood, that's how we live. That's how we transport oxygen. The Bible's been saying this forever. Leviticus 17.11. For the life of a creature is in the blood. I could give you examples of thermodynamics, of science, of physics, on and on and on and on, that this book is scientifically accurate. You can count on it. Is it trying to give you formulas? No. It never is intended to give you formulas. But at, at face value, it is accurate. Okay, I understand what you're saying, David. My problem is all the miracles. That's crazy stuff right there. Guys getting swallowed by whales and living? Come on. People walking on water, people getting risen from the dead? That just It doesn't make any sense. You know it, I know it. It's like a kid's book, right? Just take, take a, a deep breath for a moment. To me, it seems weird to, to argue about this issue. What I'm more than happy to talk to you about is the existence of God, though. Let's think about it this way. If God exists, if he exists, the very definition of God presupposes he can supersede the laws of nature and perform miracles. If he can't do that, he's not God. Would you agree? He's, he's got to be able to do that. If God exists and he can supersede the laws of nature, I'm just asking you, why is it so hard to believe that if and when he does that, he's allowed some people to record those miracles? Why is that so hard to believe? Moreover, you do know that when the Bible was first written and when it was released and basically when it was published, when it was people read it, they were writing about miracles that had just happened. They had just happened. And what's absolutely amazing is that nobody argues Nobody forces the author to retract the miracle. You know why? Because they saw it. They were right there. They were like, well, I, I don't believe in miracles either, but I, you know, I guess I saw it. I, I, so I'd encourage you. I'm more than happy to talk to you about the existence of God, but this to me isn't that difficult to figure out. If there is a God, he has every right whenever and however he wants to perform a miracle. And if he wants to record it, who, who are we to say that he can't do that? That, that's the point I'm making. Let me wrap it up by talking to you about whether this book is inspired or not. Because there are people that will tell you this is more than scientifically accurate and historically and, and archaeologically proven and manuscript true. They will tell people who tell you this book is inspired. In other words, this is God speaking to you. Let me show you a couple verses and we'll wrap it up. Second Timothy chapter 3 says this. All scripture is inspired by God. In other words, it's not really Luke telling you the story. It's not really Paul telling you a story. It's God telling you a story. 
that's kind of a big thing to say. All scripture is inspired by God and it is useful here. This is what the purpose is. To teach you what is true, to make you realize what is wrong in our lives, to correct us when we are wrong and teach us to do what is right. That's the goal of this. The writer of Proverbs says, every word of God is flawless. Boy, that, that's a big leap for me, David, honestly. I, I'm with you on the history and all that, but now you're telling me that this is actually God speaking. I'm just going to give you three reasons why I believe this to be true, and then I'll, I'll conclude with this. First of all, the authors claim it over and over again. Did you know over 3,800 times the authors basically say, this is not me speaking, this is God. Now, I just want you to think about that for a moment. If you and I are writing a book, we're writing a book. We think it's a pretty good book, okay? Um, do you think we would say, this is not us speaking, this is God speaking? Would you ever say that? When is the only time you would think of saying that? Well, either you're trying to trick someone and get them to convince to believe you, or it's true. And what I find fascinating is in the 3,800 times they say, this is God's word, never once do they... Do they um, excuse themselves. Never once do they try and defend themselves. Never once do they apologize. Never once do they backtrack and they go, you know, guys, I know this sounds really crazy and ridiculous, but this is actually God. Not once. They just say, thus says the Lord. That's what they say. Another reason is biblical prophecies. You know, I don't have time. There are over a hundred biblical prophecies in here that have been fulfilled. I mean, crazy prophecies that you're like, how could they possibly come up with that? You go, well, a lot of people do prophecies. Well, wait one second. You know the guy we always talk about, Nostradamus? You see maybe History Channel, Discovery Channel, things on him. You do know he only got about 40% of what he said right. 40%. You know what they would do to biblical prophets who got a prophecy wrong? You know what they would do to them? Stone them and burn them. That's what you get. Every single one has come, check, 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 check. And when you see that, it legitimizes this book. And then time and time and time again, Jesus is saying, you know what? It's right. It's God's word. It's God's word. It's God's word. Let me wrap up by taking you to Psalm 119. If you have your Bible, turn there real quick, page 436. Psalm 119, when you get there, is one of the longest psalms in the entire book it has 176 verses every single verse the psalmist is talking about this book every single verse and i just want to read a couple things with you to wrap up and then i'll let you get going verse 9 how can a young man keep his way pure in other words how can i live a life that is pleasing to god by living according to your word there's the answer I seek you with all my heart. I do not let my, let me stray. Do not let me stray from your commands. In other words, if you say to God, I really want to follow you. I really want to seek you. The first step you need to take is you need to get serious about this book. That's the first step. He doesn't talk about going to church. He doesn't talk about praying. He says the first step is you better get serious about this book. Verse 10, 11. I have hidden your word in my, my heart that I might not sin against you. Praise be to you, O Lord. Teach me your decrees. With my lips, I recount all the laws that come from your mouth. I rejoice in following your statutes as one rejoices in riches. And then verse 15 and 16, and then I'm going to wrap up. Verse 15. 
I meditate on your precepts. Now, to meditate means to think it through, to mull it over, to investigate. If you really want to get serious about this book, you have to investigate it. You have to study it. I don't know if I've told you this before, but I grew up in a Christian home. My parents are missionaries, so I kind of grew up with this God, Jesus, Bible thing all around me. You know what absolutely revolutionized my life? It completely changed me as a follower of Jesus Christ. It was my sophomore year of college. And someone gave me a study Bible. A study Bible means there's just as much notes and annotations and explanations as there are text. And during the summer of my sophomore year, I spent my day, my night, one hour a night, reading it. And it changed my life. It changed my life. I don't know how else to say this, and I'm telling you this because I love you. Some of you are just playing games with this. You read it for two minutes a day, and you think that maybe God's going to talk to you. And he can. But if you really want to hear from God, I'm just telling you what he says. You're going to have to investigate. You're going to have to do some studying. If you don't know what a study Bible looks like, I have one out there on the table for you to just check out. This is simple enough for our kids in Sunday school class right now to read and understand. But it is so deep that some of the greatest philosophers and thinkers of the world still don't have it all figured out. You've got to put some time into it. You've got to put some effort into it. I meditate on your precepts and I consider your ways. You know what he says? After studying it, I'm going to do it. Can I tell you the number one way you can figure out if this book really is true, authentic, and inspired? See if it really does change your marriage. See if it really does affect you emotionally. See if it really does give you advice that works on how to handle your finances. I mean, real stuff in life. You know what I found? I found it to be true for me. Based upon, I can look at all that, but I found it to be true for me. It's revolutionized my life. Verse 16, I delight in your decrees. I will not neglect your word. Some of you I know are seeking. You're checking Jesus and this God thing out. And I commend you for being here today. I'd encourage you to pick up resources like this that can help you. But I know many of you personally. If I don't know you personally, I recognize your face and I see you here week after week after week. And I'm telling you this because I care for you and love you. When the psalmist says, I will not neglect your word, question, could you say the same thing about God's word? If the only time you get a little Bible lesson is Sunday morning, you're neglecting God's word. You're neglecting it. You have the incredible privilege of having the creator of the universe tell you how you can live a life that works. But if you aren't picking it up, and if you aren't trying to at least read it and apply it and study it, you're neglecting God's word. That's the application today. You've heard me say this before. My suggestion, read two chapters a day, Monday through Friday. You get Saturday off, and on Sunday morning we'll have a little study. But don't neglect God's word. That's the point of this morning. Not all the archaeology, not all the history, the difference that this book can and will make in your life. Let's close in a word of prayer.
Dear Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for your word, and I want to thank you that you are the kind of God that is willing to talk to us, to explain to us how to live life in a way that is not only pleasing to you, but in a way that works. And Father, I pray that we would have more confidence in this book, and I pray that as we read it, that you would help us understand it. Father, the reality is many of us have tried to study it, and we've tried to read it, and it's so complicated sometimes we don't get it. And so I I just pray that that you would uh, challenge us, encourage us, help us be good thinkers of your word, realizing that there are simple truths there that we can apply, even as young children can do that, but incredibly complicated things that we got to spend some time chewing on and thinking through and processing. Father, we love you and we thank you for what you've taught us today and we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. It's our hope that today's podcast has enriched your life and answered questions you may have had. If you'd like more information about what was said in this podcast or about Bay Hills Community Church, you can reach us on the internet at www.bayhills.net. Bay Hills, located in El Sobrante, California, is radically committed to reaching the unchurched in the Bay Area and to developing believers into fully devoted followers of Christ. Thanks again for listening.